Great, everybody. Happy Friday. We are uh, we're here back on FinTech Fridays. I'm Brian Hughes, President and CEO of FinLocker. And super excited about our guest uh, this week. Uh, with me is Paul Beagleman, Paul's the Vice President at Pfizer. Pfizer uh, is one of uh, our strategic partners and relationships at FinLocker. And uh, I'm really excited to dive into into this conversation, Paul, and just really kind of pick your brain on all things, not just FinTech, but going a layer lower, or deeper rather, and talking about data and consumer data. So first of all, welcome to my podcast. I never thought I'd say that, um, <laughs> but I haven't been canceled yet. That's, really, that's a good thing, too. Welcome. Brian, thank you for having me, and um, I'm I'm honored to be on your podcast, which is not something I ever thought I'd say. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so the, no, this is great, and you know the work that you guys are doing at FinLocker is something that Fiserv is super supportive of. It's uh, it's it's great work, and we're honored to be part of it. So, thank you for having me on the podcast, and thank you for having Fiserv as part of the FinLocker project. Awesome. Well, I start out the uh, these conversations asking folks to define the term fintech, right? And we hear fintech just thrown out there as a definition and it's it means something different depending on where you sit and and where you sit is, you know, I think is close to where the term really probably originated uh, from. And so I'd love to get your perspective on what the term fintech means to Paul Deagleman. So it, it wow, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, and there's probably three or four directions that I could take it. You know, obviously, it, it, fintech is, a, is an abbreviation for financial technology, and financial technology has existed for decades, right? You go all the way back to punch cards in check cashing, right? I mean, no one would claim that's fintech, but that is, in fact, financial technology, right? Um, in, in a lot of ways, I think fintech Yes, it's financial technology, but it's also, to some extent, an experience and a feeling, right? You can still pay your bills with a check. You may not care for the experience and the feeling, but if you pay for, you know, if I split dinner with you and we use Zelle to share that money, we've just paid each other, but we did it in a fintech fashion. And so it's, it's easier, it's faster, and it's also a lot of ways how we feel about the experience, you know, the speed of life, as Fiserv likes to call it. People are too busy to write checks in most cases nowadays, right? Everybody's busy. Everybody's got a lot of things going on. You want to do things that are efficient and fast. And so I, I think all of that that I'm kind of cobbling together, to me, that's to me what fintech is. It's, a, it's an experience and it's a feeling and it's a use of technology that fits into people's lives and makes their lives better because it acknowledges how people live in the first place. I love it. I, and, and so episode three, so it's not like I've had a lot of people define it, but you definitely took a different track and and what struck me was uh, this concept of experience right that experience to me is squarely addressing the consumer the end user um, and when i think of fintech that, that's uh, among other things i ultimately do think of the end consumer myself being a consumer what you know how do i want to engage with my financial institution whether it's a bank or a credit card or even my my auto loan holder, you know, and and for me it's it uh, the preference is digital. And so, if let's let's talk a little bit, let's set the stage a little bit for for the audience to learn about Pfizer because I think most people have a recognition of the brand. You guys are a, a 
massive, you know, publicly traded international company, right? And but I think most people would be surprised at how deep and in depth you all are at different pieces of the banking system, and not just banking, but you know, payments and, and all the uh, adjacencies around that. So, for for our audience, just kind of tell us who the heck is Fiserv, you know. What do you all do, and, and how, do, how does the everyday average consumer touch Fiserv or vice versa? You know, so virtually every consumer in the U.S. touches Fiserv or Fiserv touches them every day. But in many cases, folks don't know it because the brand is a business-to-business -business brand in many respects. We, we do have some consumer-facing brands, and I'll come to that in a minute, but by and large, the company creates financial infrastructure for use cases that range from banks to billers to consumers, um, really kind of anyone in between, any one part of that ecosystem who needs to move money, account for money, track money, uh, send a bill, pay a bill. Th th there is a host of capabilities that, you know, the, the Fiserv of decades, you know, over the last few decades has created technology for banks. It, it, that's, that, that's sort of the genesis here. So every month, 25 million people log into their bank and pay a bill, and they're using Fiserv. They just don't know it, and that's okay, right? Our job is to help our, our clients promote their own brands, and we sit in the back. Um, every month, 100 million people grab their phone and check their bank balance. That's Fiserv. People don't know that, and that's okay. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to have a relationship and an experience with their bank, and it's our job to sit behind that and make sure that that experience and that relationship works. You send a Zelle payment. We are the largest reseller and integrator of Zelle. And as Zelle continues to grow in a dramatic fashion, um, catching up to the likes of Enmo and PayPal, we are an, an, an important integration point into Zelle. People don't know it, and we don't need them to know it necessarily. Now, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the last couple of years, we had an amazing opportunity to start to work together with First Data and conjoin the two companies. And in that class, because of that, we now have some consumer-facing brands. So just over the weekend, I, I, was, I was at a sports event with my kids and club volleyball, and I paid at the concession stand with a white device sitting there that said Clover on it. Well, Clover is Fiserv, right? So because of the, the, the work we now do with First Data, we have also begun to branch out into really important use cases and markets where consumers are literally seeing a brand of Fiserv. So in, sort of in summary, almost 1,000 products, we're, we're tucked into or embedded into so many things that, that are related to money that it's okay that people don't necessarily know it. Our clients know it, and we do our best to help our clients advance their proposition through what we do from an infrastructure standpoint. So you, you all are, as I said earlier, a, a key strategic partner of, of Finlocker, and, and we partner with Fiserv to enable consumers who come to Finlocker through our clients, we're very much like Fiserv in that we're a B2B2C B2 um, platform. When clients come to Finlocker, consumers come to Finlocker, they use the embedded Fiserv data aggregation technology where they link their accounts and then we are bringing in transactional data um, for those consumers. I'm really, I'm really curious um, how, what has Fiserv seen kind of since the pandemic started with respect to consumer adoption usage and engagement with um, platforms like Finlocker and other data aggregation platforms. I, I, you know, I've read anecdotally that there's been a 
massive, you know, increase of adoption. I always like to reference uh, everyone's got a grandmother now that knows how to get on Zoom and, and you know, say Happy Easter or, or whatever the holiday is. Um, what have you guys seen and witnessed and experienced? And then based on what you've seen, how are you thinking about uh, the, the role of, of consumer data going forward and, and what role Pfizer plays in that? So the, the take rate on digital experiences when they are a substitute for a physical experience has been dramatic, right? I mean, everybody gets it, right? You're, you're, you're buying things online and they show up. You're ordering your groceries and you show up at the store and they're sitting there. Like online has become so prevalent in so many facets of, of American life, especially in the last 12 months when it really, I, I my opinion, it accelerated dramatically. And you look at some of the products that we offer that would enable an online experience, whether it's opening a new bank account or moving money between bank accounts, or if I send money from my bank account to your bank account, um, personal financial management, wellness apps, a, a literal explosion. And in the first, I'm going to call it Q1 of the pandemic, right? So let's call that March, April, May of last year, as I kind of make up, <laughs> I've just now made up a new calendar term, <laughs> yeah. Q1 of the pandemic. <laughs> Um, the, the growth just in the PFM segment of data aggregation, so just the traditional segment of folks wanting to aggregate where all their money is into a singular view, grew by 25% month over month during those months. It was that significant as people are like, wow, I've really got to start thinking about my money, my budget, my future. Um, and it, and it, it grew dramatically. And we're seeing the same with Zelle payments, for example, growing significantly. You know, bill payments growing significantly. Um, the, the work that you guys are doing, growing significantly, right? Just the, the, the digital experiences are growing significantly. And I, I, as we all know, the pandemic has accelerated right. that. And, and I, I, th I know the answer to this. I just, uh, I, I think I owe it to everyone to hear it. It's not going to go back. We're not going to, we're not going to revert to pre-pandemic experiences at, at scale. I mean, I think it's safe to say that if, if, if the average consumer who wasn't using digital, an app, or, 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 or doing online transactions um, and started doing it, you know, through the pandemic and have, have done it now for, unfortunately, almost 15 months, <laughs> um, it's not right. likely that they're going to go back and say, I can't wait to go drive to my bank branch and, and write <laughs> these checks. I mean, you know, and I came, I, I right. came out of the banking industry, and so it, one of the jokes that we had with some of our bank branches that they really served the purpose of providing, you know, donuts and coffee for for their for their uh, their guests because the functionality they could do everything else on their mobile app. So we're not going back, right? So it's funny you say this. So go back one CEO in Fiserv's history, uh, Jeff Yabuki. Amazing contribution to the company and our employees and our shareholders and our customers. And and he used to talk about this thing called the speed of life. And I, I mentioned it a couple minutes ago because it really resonated with me. People are so busy, right? We all have things that we either want to do or we have to do that you really, you know, me, I'll speak for myself personally. I need things that work the way I want them to work when I want them to work because I just don't really have the time to do them twice or to do them over some protracted period of time. And his example that I would always laugh about because he's used it in a couple conferences was, you know, 
Most of the songs you're listening to on your phone are on a CD and they're in your basement. But you don't have the time to walk to your basement and burn them to your phone. You go to iTunes and you spend 99 cents and you buy them. Now, I think fast forward, now you don't even do that. You just pay nine bucks a month for Spotify yeah. or whatever. Like, you don't even have time to go to iTunes and buy them. Like, people just want what they want and things need to move at that speed. And, and I think those that are winning in the market today are moving at the speed of life and they've got their finger on how is the speed of life changing and in so many ways it's accelerating dramatically in just the last year yeah it's it's fascinating um and and so i, I as you know i came out of the mortgage industry before joining finlocker so 28 years in in traditional mortgage banking and in mortgage itself is is probably still one of the more antiquated financial you know, industries or sectors. Um, and, and it's, you know, we're, the industry's trying to, to push to digital, but there's still just so many components of the process that, uh, that require, you know, documentation, paper versus, you know, digital. And, and, and it's not to say that we're not accelerating because it is accelerating, but um, it, I think when I look at other you know, either lending products or services versus mortgage, it's still clear to me that there's there's a not so much a lack of adoption at the consumer level. It's really at the company level, at the mortgage company level, and to some degrees at the loan officer level who's engaged with the consumer. Um, what, what's been interesting to see is, you know, big company, Pfizer, right? When I think of Pfizer, I think of how how you guys power close to 50% of the U.S. core banking platforms, right? Is that fair to say, somewhere around there? Yeah, it's about 40%. That's right. We are the largest provider, and we have roughly 40% so share. That immediately speaks to me as, well, i got to be a big bank to, to get access to Fiserv or get, get access to the Fiserv technology, which is not true anymore because there's companies, and, and Finlocker is one of those, and there's others of your clients who now have built technology that brings the same functionality and consumer experience that the biggest banks get from Pfizer for their customers to smaller institutions. So while we talk about adoption at the consumer level, I think there's also been a massive uh, uh, adoption at the smaller client level. And when I talk about client, I'll say mortgage lender level that makes digesting mm -hmm. technology a little bit more uh, it's easier and more affordable. Is that something that you guys are, are seeing kind of across the, the, the different verticals that you serve today? Yeah, and, I, and, and it, 100%. I think it depends by product, right? Some products were built, and they're only yeah. for a bank, right? They, you know, they need a money transmission license, or they're, you know, they're built for a bank. But there is, an, uh, out of our roughly 1,000 products, there's quite a few of them that are used by smaller and mid-sized businesses. And what you and I work on together with aggregated consumer permission data or the connections between all the banks through Pfizer over to Finlocker has been a, a, an area of tremendous growth, not only for us, but for the folks that, that, you know, our aggregation product competes with, folks like Plaid or Yodley, Finicity, other names that are well-known in that space. And, and yes, so for, if I jump to that topic for, for a second, if, you, if, if I can, talk about aggregated data. The, the use of the data, when properly permissioned by a consumer, 
has absolutely exploded because there are fintech apps, there are tech apps, there are legacy platforms, there are wealth platforms. Like the number of places a consumer wants to share their data has grown significantly in the last couple of years. And and Fiserv's in a unique spot because where that data sits often is at a bank or a credit union. We run roughly 40% of those banks and credit unions because those banks have entrusted us to generally be their back office. So in this space, we both run many of the sources and we are capable of properly and privately providing that data to the other endpoints where the consumers want the data shared. So you, you, set, you, you, you said a, 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 a phrase that I want to kind of poke at a little bit. Um, consumer permission sharing or consumer permission consent yeah. to share. When I hear that, it almost implies that there's there's something else that potentially is happening with consumer data where they haven't necessarily consented and permissioned. And, and is that something that is uh, from an as a consumer, as a as a company who's going to you know help consumers aggregate and, and share data, is that something that the industry is kind of concerned about? Is is you know the, the players who maybe are not necessarily getting that consent from a consumer, and and how does the U.S. differ from other countries when it comes to the sharing of of, of, of asset data or financial data? And there's a lot there to unpack. So in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so uh, let me work backwards from the end. Um, so in certain countries, you know, some in the EU, uh, Australia, for example, consumers have a documented data right. So the information, you know, you know if, if you and I lived in, in the UK, the information at our bank, we can share that. We have the right to share that data. There's, there's you know, now it's a much smaller banking ecosystem with a couple hundred banks. Right. It's not 11,500 banks like we have here in the U.S., which creates its own level of complexity. But in some countries, you have a documented and regulatorily provided data right. The U.S. is working towards that. And so the work that we do with the CFPB, the OCC, we're members of FDATA, FDX, like there's a lot going on here to ensure that consumers can, in fact, share their data in a fashion where it is only shared when they have explicitly provided their permission to share it. And when the consumer wishes to cease that sharing, there is a mechanism to allow them or the app with which they've shared it to easily shut it off. So, you know, so, so I, I answered your questions, yep. you know, kind of from the last to the first. If you go way back to the very beginning of aggregation, I mean, it's why it's called, it's called aggregation because what it means is one person wants to get all of their data from all these places aggregated to a place whether it's an app or a PFM or what have you. And when, when this concept, you know, when this came up, it was fairly new, it was fairly unknown, you know, so a lot of it was done with screen scraping. Um, where were, you know, where was my username and password in this process? Nobody really knew, so it was sort of blurry. And yes, over time, pools of data have, have become available that aren't necessarily any longer permissioned. Um, I think the market's doing a really good job of snuffing that stuff out in this space. And so, yes, we do, for when we talk about aggregation and connectivity of, of consumer data, the permissioning piece is absolutely critical, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it is the regulatory thing to do, and it's, it's the best way to protect consumers and the folks with whom the data has been shared. So screen scraping, uh, I think people yeah. maybe conceptually understand that. Can you talk a little bit about what that really is and, and what it means and 
how how it happens? Yeah, yeah. It's so it, it was the original way that that aggregation or connectivity was created. And so what happens is, um, let me just give you an example. If a consumer comes to the FinLocker site and wishes to share their banking information, there's a variety of ways that Fiserv can get that information for FinLocker, and then you'll have it to do all the things you do with it. One of those ways is called screen scraping, and in that process, it's a form of reverse engineering. In my system, with certain banks that are not capable of doing API connectivity with me or something else, I actually have code that is written that goes to the correct URL and that mimics the login of the consumer and then pulls out the data that is necessary for FinLocker to do the things you do with respect to mortgage. So screen scraping is kind of what it sounds like. Technology that I have or others actually logs in and scrapes the screen and then provides that data to you. So that, that, that's the original version of how aggregation worked. It is still in existence. It will be in existence despite what others will tell you for some amount of time because there's just too many banks, many of whom don't have the capability or the staff to, to set up with, a, with us or others in an API fashion. So it's, the industry is looking to snuff it out, but it's yeah. going to take some time. But, but that's how it works. That's what it is. Um, is it necessarily bad? I don't know that it's necessarily bad, but it is slowly becoming more and more frowned upon as, as bank technology improves to the point where we can share in some other fashion that's less intrusive, let's call it. I love it. So um, let's, let's pivot a little bit and, and think about it from the lens of the bank, the, 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 yep. you know, the, the source of the data, right, is the bank. So if I'm a, I'm a consumer and I'm in FinLocker and I want to link, um, I want to link, you know, three bank accounts I have, a couple credit cards, a mortgage, et cetera. What is the, mm -hmm. what's the environment like at the institution level with respect to all of these platforms that are, that are, that have popped up, you know, over the last five or so years? Is there, is there a sense of, um, from a bank perspective, especially maybe the smaller banks is I got to, I got to kind of hold my ground and protect my turf or, 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 or are they more open to, to their customers aggregating data across other platforms? So this is a question that I would argue Fiserv is uniquely suited to answer because we are the only data aggregator or provider of connectivity that is also running those bank sources, right? Roughly 40% of the space sits in our data center. And so, we both want to advance the concept of sharing information while at the same time we're super focused on securing it and keeping it private because all sources need to be kept secure and private, but 40% of them were actually running this on their behalf and we have that as our responsibility. So the banks all take different approaches, right? The largest banks, it's hard to really say. They, they, they might not necessarily be bought into a consumer data right in the first place, right? They've got the ability to offer every service. I'm not the only guy, you know, I'm not the only company that can have a thousand products, yeah. right? Trillionaire banks could have a thousand products too. So there's, there's sort of this sense of, that, that kind of floats around first is, is there really a consumer data right? Okay, not everyone sees that the same and that's why I think regulators are jumping in and attempt to help shape the answer to that question. After you get past that question of is there a consumer data right, then you, I think you've got to then, there's a whole bunch of things you've got to solve for. But one of them is, 
what does aggregation do to the bank site itself that is being aggregated? So when, one of the when the very first PPP loans were dispersed and the first stimulus checks went out, on those days, aggregation took a hit because bank sites were set for a certain amount of traffic. All of a sudden, you had way more traffic than the bank sites ever expected because no one has ever gotten a stimulus payment right. before, right? Like, all of a sudden, there's a lot of people going, did I get my stimulus payment? It's 8 in the morning. I don't see it. I'll check at 9. I don't see it. I'll check at 10. I don't see it. I'll check at 11. So the activity on the bank sites for a couple of days was incredibly burdensome. And aggregation had to slow down and actually step out of the way. You guys may remember, we had some days where, like, hey, these sources are not going to support Finlocker or anyone because they must support their consumer customers right. who need to see if they've gotten their stimulus money. So, you know, there's – you asked a really simple question, <laughs> no, and yeah. I probably made this way more complicated than it needed to be. But the sites are set to run based on the traffic they expect, and part of that is they expect aggregation traffic. Yep. And they see aggregation traffic in different ways. Sometimes it's a burden. Sometimes it slows them down. Sometimes they don't even notice, right? So there's 11,500 banks and credit unions. There's probably 300 answers to your yeah. question as to whether they notice, care, don't care. Um, I will say that we've had a number of banks come to us directly and want to talk about ways that fintech apps can be more easily integrated into the bank's offerings. Right, because at the at the big end, right, the trillionaire banks could all have a thousand products too. But if you're a credit union with say, you know, two two, three hundred thousand members, right, you may want some better mortgage technology than you can get on your own. You may want some better student loan or card technology. And so the banks have in fact also come to us and said, Hey, how do we how do we stitch together with some of these fintech apps that are doing things that create the kind of experience consumers want and how do we glue them into our ecosystem in the most efficient yeah. way so uh, that's another thing that's certainly underway and i imagine you're seeing that yourself yeah we we're definitely seeing it in the mortgage space so most of you know if you, when you think about the non-bank mortgage lenders they're typically a monoline they offer mortgage that's the only product they offer and in a lot of cases they offer the, the product at a point in time, and then the consumers hand it off to somebody else who's going to service the, the mortgage itself. And um, mm -hmm. what, what we're starting to see with, with those types of institutions is they're, they're trying to think differently about their ecosystem and their, their consumer experience, not just inside the transaction that they're, you know, where they make money, but ahead of the transaction. How can they, how can they leverage some of the, the fintech um, products that are out there to help, you know, groom and prepare prospective clients. So there's up the funnel activity, and then how can they use similar or or, or different technology as an engagement post mortgage transaction for a customer for life? Um, and so it's fascinating to just to talk to folks and and get their take on how they're thinking about uh, a. a more cohesive consumer experience, not just in the transaction itself, and I, you know, and that's it's it's having to compete with push button get mortgage, right? The, and some of the other uh, large uh, fintech lenders that exist who also have massive marketing budgets. So it's been, from my lens, from my seat, it's been fascinating to to just watch the the evolution inside a mortgage. Um, 
you know, like we talked about earlier, the, the pandemic has accelerated not just the consumer usage and adoption, but I think also smaller uh, financial services providers like mortgage companies are thinking, how, how am I going to compete in the future with these platforms that are very much, you know, in the fintech space? Um, it, it's going to be it'll be it'll be so fascinating the, to watch it unfold. The, the thing, the thing, and you and I have talked about this before, but the thing I've always found fascinating about FinLocker is that many types of financial transaction don't require a whole lot of education, right? I can send a Zelle payment, it's fairly simple. I can make a bill payment, it's fairly simple. Like, I can do lots of stuff that's fairly simple, and I don't need a lot of education. But a mortgage is a significant transaction that some people only do once, twice, you know, not that yeah. many times. It has huge implications. It's very complex. And I, 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 this I know I never told you. Years ago, my sister sent me a text, and the text said, what do I need to know about getting a mortgage? <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is not suitable for a text exchange. Right. <laughs> so like, that's one of the things that, that, that we find so exciting about working with you guys is that when consumers begin this journey, and they need this help and this education and, and, and all the other things that FinLocker provides, part of it is we can provide the data that they've asked to share with you and you can then help them do something that I think is complicated and it's not a muscle people flex that That's often. right. You know, you kind of forget in between, like there's a lot going on here. So that's one of the things we love about, about what you guys are doing in wellness and, and helping people get mortgages. Oh, thank you for that. So we're at the we're at the fun part of the talk here. It's hard to believe we've been going here almost thirty minutes. So, I like to I like to close by giving you an opportunity to to share a little bit about yourself um, with our audience. So, um, hopefully, most of many of our watchers and listeners are learning a little bit more about Fiserv and how Fiserv actually is in and around the mortgage industry. But let's go a layer below and, and, and figure out who the heck Paul Beagleman is and. What do you do when you're not solving the world's financial problems? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing is I'm open for business 24-7, so I, I am happy to solve any problem anytime. <laughs> um, so, so, but, you know, you know I, it, it's funny. I just got back. Um, so my daughters play club volleyball. I have twin daughters who are 15, and they just had the best season. You know, I, I guess I should probably say another best yeah. season. Um, it's just been, you know, I, I, there's so much I really like about volleyball club, like, you know, the travel, the teams, the whole thing. It's just been a great season where we're winding down, which is kind of a bummer. So, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next couple months <laughs> until school volleyball starts. Yeah. But, but, uh, you know, the, the club volleyball has just been great for my wife and, and two daughters. And, uh, so if anybody wants to call and talk about volleyball, I, uh, I got free time now. My youngest, uh, she's 23 now, so we're a little removed from uh, from club and high school volleyball. But she was a clubber, and and uh, yeah, those were fun fun tournaments. I mean, a lot of long Saturdays sitting in a gym with a lot of you know 30 courts going on and all the different chants and cheers and and yelps and screams and but it was uh, those were fun definitely yep. fun times and. And it's been amazing to watch like our, our nieces are club volleyballers and or they're all over the place. Orlando, yeah. Vegas. It's like, oh, my God, this is it's getting it's getting out of control. But it's uh, they the girl. Those teams are such tight knit, you know, groups. And it's fun seeing the girls in the 
hotel lobby, just having a, a good time, you know, in between the game action. And of course, I think the parents maybe aren't in the lobby. They're over at, in the, uh, the, the hotel bar having an equally good time. So hundred <laughs> percent that all of that, you, you've clearly seen this movie. What, what position did your daughter play? She was a, uh, outside hitter. I think that's what it was. I think, yeah. Excellent. Outside hitter. Yeah. 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 She would run and jump, well, and so I have spike. a. I have a back. <laughs> nice, nice. There, we're going to need that for some kills. Yeah. I've uh, I've got a DS and I've got a middle, and uh, so it's pretty nice. We can get a lot of stuff going in the backyard with uh, yeah. with the two of them. Yeah, that's pretty cool, and, and obviously they're on the same team. That that's uh, that help. That's helpful. <laughs> well, interestingly oh, no. enough, they're in the same club, but not on the same team, right? So. So I, the club season was awesome because they only had a few tournaments together. Otherwise, we were everywhere every weekend with one oh, of those kids. Like, wow. I can't get enough of this. Yeah. So keep them on two separate teams. That way I get more than anybody else would. Good for you. Good for you. Well, I miss it for sure. And uh, you're, you're, you're getting in, into the heart of it now because it's, it's club in high school where, you know, I'm imagining they're probably playing at a pretty good level. So. Well, Paul, thank you, man. Thank you so much for uh, for joining. Uh, this was awesome. I'm, I I know that I learned, like I always do when we talk, a little bit more about kind of uh, consumer permission data. I know our audience is going to learn a little bit more. Um, in the event that someone wants to learn even more, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Oh, hey, find me on LinkedIn. Paul Diggleman, you know, I'm, I'm easy to find, and um, I'm happy to talk to anybody about data, Fiserv, volleyball, Metallica. whatever, anytime. Metallica, too. Metallica, right? I mean, add that to the list, 100%. <laughs> awesome. Well, Paul, thank you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for joining FinTech Fridays, and uh, everybody have a great weekend. All right. Thank you, Brian. Have a good weekend.